Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we have the senior senator from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. I think it's so smart that she's coming on the show. (laughs) She will be in this studio in just a little bit. And John got her some treats. Tommy asked what her favorite Dunkin' Donuts order was on Twitter. She responded immediately. The Boston Globe wrote a story. The the Boston Globe, being the good hometown newspaper that they are, they have a Boston guy, they have Elizabeth Warren... They have Dunkin' Donuts mentioned. They well, put it in a story. You don't need anything else. <laughs> I, want, I want you guys to know that there's a box of Dunkin' Donuts in the studio, and I went to take one, and John said, those donuts aren't for eating. They're for clicking. <laughs> <laughs> we do things for the social media here. All right, people. We all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. 
Okay. So uh, before <laughs> seamless integration, <laughs> before Senator Warren arrives, um, everyone, Pod Save the People was on hiatus last week. DeRay is back this week. DeRay and Brittany and Sam are going to go deep into the past week's news, including the economics of mass incarceration, emoluments, education budgets, and the troubling work to preserve some of these Confederate monuments. Dre also speaks with Vanita Gupta, former head of the Civil Rights Division at DOJ. It's a great episode. It is out today. So go download it. Okay. Let's talk about the, in the words of the White House, unprecedented... <laughs> That's a new word. Let's talk about, in the words of the White House, the historically successful foreign trip. Did you try to say unprecedentedly I successful? did, and I couldn't do it, so I moved on. Okay. Uh, the historically successful foreign trip that Trump just came back from. So... Halfway through this trip last week, when he was finished with the Middle Eastern portion, some people in the press were calling it a success. Of course, Chris Saliza of CNN said it was worthy of praise. Politico was praising the staff for putting it together. NBC said he was on message. Um, what do we think now? What Now that we're looking back on this trip? Premature? I, 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 I don't want to be the guy that spends the next four years complaining about how Obama was treated versus how Trump was treated. But like... We were we spent years being attacked for abandoning allies like Obama removed a bust of Winston Churchill from the Oval Office. And we spent four years hearing about how the special relationship was destroyed. He walks to oh, he goes to Europe. He arm wrestles with Macron. He like assaults the Montenegro, whatever he is, and shoves him out of the way. The leader. And at the end of the trip, <laughs> the end of the trip, Angela Merkel is so upset. She gives a speech saying Europe must really take our fate into our own hands. I mean, that is the story of the entire trip is that our stalwart allies, the people who are a part of NATO, who have been with us for decades, keeping the globe peaceful, are worried that the United States is walking away from those bedrock alliances. And it's like. This is why we can't judge trips on optics and like whether Jared's frequent flyer miles were pin code was entered properly. Like these are big <laughs> ticket security items, and he he doesn't act like he's the leader of the free world. He acts like he's their loan officer, complaining about paying NATO dues as if that's the end goal of the alliance and not like global security. Yeah. Also, it's to say that Trump was on message. He didn't talk to the press. It's like he was on message by. By literally standing there and wearing a suit? Like, is that what being on message he's, is He's now? on message by, like, not having the international data plan on his phone so he couldn't tweet. <laughs> that, that, was, that was on message. Uh, yeah. And by the way, a lot of people have made this point, but, like, if on message means consistency, then he was not on message. Because he went to the Saudi Arabia and he told them he wouldn't lecture them. And then he went to Europe and he lectured them all over the place. Didn't, le- didn't want to lecture the dictators. Did want to lecture the Democratic allies in Europe. No, I mean, it's interesting because there's the smaller stuff, the smaller gaffes that Obama still would have gotten shit for if he'd gone into foreign policy. Like, and, and we didn't talk about, like, the orb. Who the fuck cares about the orb, Stupid. right? He did say, like, we just got back from the Middle East while he was in Israel, which made the <laughs> Israel's ambassador, like, slap himself in the Ron Dermer. Ron Dermer, yeah. right-wing Republican, right. by the way. He's like, you know, he, he did, like, treat his note at Israel's Holocaust Memorial Museum like it was a yearbook message. Yeah, like, <laughs> like letter to See you next summer, Yad Vashem. (laughs) Despicable. Amazing being here, right? Like, all of this stuff is small, it's gas. Still, it would have been a whole... But what you just mentioned, Tommy, what he did at NATO, what he did with our European allies, is by any standard of any foreign... Any U.S. president of either party's foreign trip of the last however many years, hugely 
problematic, the, right? The, the, the existence of NATO is essentially revolves around a provision of it called Article 5, which says if one member of, of NATO is attacked, we'll come to their collective defense. He refused to publicly reaffirm his commitment to Article 5, which freaked out everybody that has to deal with increasingly, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Bellicose. Bellicose Russia. Belligerent. Thank you. Belligerent is the word I was looking for. Aggressive. And, uh, and additionally, he, he wouldn't com- recommit to the the Paris Climate Accord at the G7, which was a huge break with the rest of the G7. So, w- w- where's the progress? What's the success? Well, it was, it was interesting. You said the the, the one people, the person who was not sorry. It was interesting that the uh, the one country that was celebrating uh, the foreign trip and Trump's foreign trip was Russia, and uh, Russian TV said that Trump turned NATO into a house of cards. So the 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 fact that on background. Or behind the scenes, Trump advisors like, no, 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 he'll reaffirm Article 5. First of all, that misses the point. It misses the point because this is one of those places where posture is the most important thing, right? right? This isn't, we, we, you know, we, we are signatories to NATO, right? We are supposed to uphold NATO. The president's not saying it out loud is a very big deal in and of itself, even if his advisors behind the scenes are like, he's an idiot. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Like Vladimir Putin is looking for these signals. And the craziest part about this is Donald Trump is in Europe. He's being asked to push back against Russia at a time when his administration is being accused in the press day after day of being too sympathetic, of having colluded, of having these very strange meetings over and over again that they lied about on their security clearance forms. His son-in-law is being threatened right now by these stories uh, to to expose a kind of uh, cr- crazy relationship that suggests that they're uh, beholden to Russia. And he still wouldn't criticize him. Yeah. It, he it, still wouldn't criticize Russia. That is that it's. It's like it's right in front of our faces. Yeah, and your point about posture is really important because like there's no principle that is going to enforce NATO if we if we choose not to come to the collective defense. It's all about your commitment. It's all about your willingness to be there in the toughest time imaginable. And and his signal does say to Vladimir Putin that what you did in Crimea is fine. Go that after you, Ukraine. Take all of Ukraine. Take a look at some of those Belarus, little East, you're yeah, right. yeah. Look at some of those small Eastern European countries whose capitals you were learned in high school. <laughs> what, do, what do we think about Macron there? He, so he has he has this sort of white knuckled handshake with Donald Trump, um, and he comments on it later and does, basically says it wasn't an accident. He says, "Quote: Donald Trump, the president of Turkey or the president of Russia, are of a mindset of power relations which doesn't bother me. I don't believe in diplomacy of the public invective, but in bilateral dialogues." And so, first of all, the fact that the president of France is lumping in the U.S. president with Erdogan and Putin is very unsettling. And, and another another say he doesn't believe... But not uh, unfair. He doesn't believe in diplomacy by public abuse yeah. as well. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it's interesting. Donald Trump... And then Macron stood up at a press conference with Putin and called out RT and Sputnik as propaganda outlets right next to Putin. So talk about criticizing Putin. And uh, Macron recorded a video message to American scientists, engineers, and entrepreneurs saying, if the United States is not going to care about climate change, come to France. We care about it too. The kind of message the U.S. (laughs) used to send to say, we're a beacon of the the future. We're a beacon of of, of smart policies and, and economic opportunity. The thing that the thing that's so galling, right, is is Trump introduces this childish used car salesman notion of masculinity to the world stage. You push people out of the way, you give them a tight handshake, you pull them in, you pat them on the shoulder. Because again, Donald Trump picked this shit up from eighty self help books he saw uh, <laughs> on the shelf. And the thing that you know, it's the kind of thing where when someone steals your parking space and they're going nuts, 
the only way you can get it back from them is you have to go a little crazy too. And so Donald Trump introduces <laughs> Jack Donaghy. That's a, a loaded, loaded observation well, right no. there. Don't, don't drive with John. <laughs> do not drive with no, John no, no, no. But Tommy all I'm saying that, that you either have to you either have to concede. Or you have to lower yourself to their level to care enough about a parking space to fight over it. And so Donald Trump introduces this nonsense masculinity into fucking handshakes. And Macron's like, all right, that's the game you want to play. I will squeeze your hand until it hurts and I won't let go of it. And what sucks is like, we're on his side. Yeah, well, I mean, it also sucks that it worked, right? I mean, this is what we're talking about right now and not not any any bit of substance from these meetings. Well, let's move on to Paris because, love it, I know you're going to have thoughts on this. So Axios reported in the middle of the trip that uh, Trump has privately told multiple people, including EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, that he plans to leave the Paris Agreement sometimes this week. Uh, Of course, he tweeted uh, during the trip, or someone tweeted for him, because of course, again, the international data plan was off for him, um, that he was going to announce this week whether or not he leaves Paris. So he still wants to make it a bit of a reality TV show type uh, game. But uh, it seems like he's all, all signs are pointing towards him leaving Paris, which is quite a surprise because we were told that Javanka and globalist Gary and the New York cucks were going to prevent this from happening with their very important influence on all the, all the, econo- all the CEOs on the council and, and Gary and uh, Jared and Ivanka. They were in the White House. They were participating in this mess because they are going to have a good outcome. They're going to influence a good outcome. So shocking this didn't work. First, so... First we of don't all, know yet. We, we don't could know all be yet. wrong. I could, yeah, okay. I, I could be would, eating these words by the end of the week. Well, we don't know. A week ago, it looked more promising. Now Trump has, seems to have spun the other way, or at least the, somebody inside the administration is floating into Axios. You know, who knows what you can take at face value, right? These people are liars, and people take what they say at face value. Um, I, it's been my position for the whole time. This whole time, this whole notion that globalist Gary and Ivanka and Jared were moderating influences. Everything came down to Paris. Everything. And that includes, by the way, the Economic Council and Elon Musk and others who said they're staying in because they want to see if they can make a difference. If he pulls out of Paris, it means that it is hopeless because there has been unanimity on the part of uh, Democrats, on the part of a lot of business leaders that have been trying to influence this administration. If you can't get Republicans to— Republicans, too. Lindsey Graham. Well, but notably— they were saying that uh, McConnell and about 20 Senate Republicans sent a letter last week to him telling him to pull out of Paris. Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't say every Republican, no, no, but, but saying, there are smart Republicans who are saying you should stay in it. And, and I, But I think, like, the, the more fundamental point is all these stories about staff shakeups, Mike Dubke, his communications director, getting canned today, apparently, because Trump couldn't get over the fact that he said there was no Trump doctrine on foreign policy and that leaked. Apparently, that's what Dylan Byers just reported. Like... I think staff can influence Trump insofar as you can be the last person to tell him information that like pinballs him one way or the other. But I don't think he's an individual that's like really susceptible to logic or reason or to good policy discussions. He's a guy who's going to do what he's going to do. He's set in his ways. And you're you're either a part of this monstrosity or you're not. Well, it's, what's interesting, too, is it's not just all this staff has been trying to moderate his stance and they've failed uh, in the Kushner story that we'll talk about soon. That Glenn Thrush and Maggie Haberman wrote over the weekend. Um, there was a paragraph in there that said, Mr. Kushner appears to be modifying his centrist stances. Instead of urging the president to keep the U.S. in the Paris Climate Accord as he sought two months ago, he has come to believe the standards in the agreement need to be changed. So it's not just that they are failing to moderate Trump. It, that is, he is changing their views. Well, was, well, so we don't again, like this is all who knows what's going on behind the scenes. They are they are a group of people 
desperately negotiating even amongst themselves to try to influence a dotty old racist who's in decline and unable to concentrate. I mean, like we're in a serious crisis. And one of the parts of this crisis is that Donald Trump is not persuadable. He doesn't have the mental acuity to focus on these questions long enough to come to a logical conclusion. So I am I, I, I again, like it's a it's a binary here. If they stay in Paris and they say as part of staying in Paris, we are going to continue to negotiate this. We're going to make adjustments. We're going to push for changes. If that was a way to get this thing over the finish line, I am fine with that. But it's, yeah. it's 100 percent. If they could keep them in, they did a good job. If not, we'll never listen to them again. That's it. I'm done. We have clarity on that. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. But I just hate this conversation about like Jared. Is he good? Is he bad? We, we just sort of skip over the fact that his his policy depth is 120 days old. Yeah, right. Give or take. Right. This is a 36 year old dilettante who like lucked his bought his way into school, who lucked his way into a real estate fortune and a good marriage so far uh, and has to deal with the horrible stepdad that he works for, not stepdad, father-in-law, who's now his boss. I mean, he's not a real advisor. He's not someone who brings any kind of gravitas or knowledge or experience to the job. He's a kid. It's nepotism. And you know that that's what, you know, <laughs> Steve Bannon gets in there and goes like, listen, I know Jared has your best interest at heart, but are you going to listen to this guy? Rightly, in, and he's right. The penny loafer princeling. <laughs> princeling. So Glenn and Maggie's story about, about Jared, um, of course, stems from the news that broke on Friday night that in during the transition, uh, Jared had unreported meetings with Ambassador Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, and the head of a Russian bank who I know and love to leave it, whose name we couldn't pronounce. And no, I still no, can't no, pronounce no, it. No, so long. No, no, the, the bank's name is quite long, but the, there's a, his, the guy's middle name is incomprehensible. I gave up on both of them. It uh, sounds like Seb Gorka, though. It sounds like Seb Gorka, but yeah. it's not. Nope. <laughs> so anyway, Jared had these meetings. He left them off as, F, as F-86. Oops, by accident. Then reported them later. There was some reporting of this meeting earlier, but now we know he was uh, reportedly trying to set up a secret channel of communication directly to the to the Kremlin using Russian diplomatic facilities. The first excuse from allies of Jared that uh, wound up in the New York Times after the Washington Post reported the story was that this was all about uh, Syria, that they wanted a direct channel to Flynn, from Flynn to Russian generals so they could fix the problems in Syria. Uh, Tommy, does that make sense? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it, like General Flynn could pick up the phone and call someone discreetly, and that's a back channel. You don't have to go to a Russian diplomatic facility and do this KG end run around the intelligence community and the State Department and everybody else. Like, the back channel has become this inflated thing. Like, when Tom Donilon would fly to China to have meetings with their senior leadership, that was a, a useful back channel because it could be private. You have a confidential conversation. He comes back, reports directly from the president. You don't need to do all this cloak and dagger bullshit. Well, well the thing the thing people keep <laughs> the re, part of the reason this is conflating two things is it's only a back channel from America. It looks like a regular channel from the Russian point of view. Yeah. It's not like he's going directly to Putin's house. He's going to a Russian facility to use their regular, ordinary communication system. So it's a back channel to keep things from America. It's not a. It's not on the Russian side. It's just a, it's just the normal thing. Specifically from American intelligence, from yeah. the State Department, from the Defense Department. From and then and one thing like. That's worth pointing out about the intelligence community and DOD and state is like there are a lot of people who, you know, we would feel like we're had sort of a Cold War mindset even during the Obama years. Like there's people who are deeply distrustful of Russia. It sounds like they you know, had a point. They maybe were right all along. But like those are the people who maybe you're making an end run around. And that is incredibly valuable to Putin and the Kremlin because they don't want to deal with all those people and their skepticism and their cynicism. If they can cut a deal with Trump, that's like. 
you know, some relief on sanctions for fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be the quid pro quo doesn't have to have happened. Right. It could happen in the future. They could be setting up a way to get something in the future. And that is just as dangerous, if not worse. So you mentioned the fact that the word back channel has sort of been conflated in this whole debate. <laughs> I see a lot of people on the right now and on Fox and on other places saying, you know, Obama had a back channel with Iran and everyone said it was brilliant and smart and a way to do diplomacy. So, so people know what's the difference between having a back channel and what Jared did. Well, it starts with the fact that Barack Obama was president of the United States when we, when we conducted secret negotiations with Iran. That's a big... Uh, and Jared a, is just Jared a, during a transition. That's a big caveat. I mean, this sort of gets, I'm, I'm interviewing on Pod Save the World a guy named Bill Burns today, who's the deputy secretary of state, who, along with Jake Sullivan, was part of the team that led the secret talks between the United States and Iran that led to the Iran deal. That's an example of really useful private diplomacy. And that's something that's happened for for decades it's like trusted confidant of one president trust trusted, trusted confidant of another president and they can work things out and not go through the formal bureaucracy or have a secretary of state come over with a press corps and have a big to do that's formal and has talking points and like cut through the bullshit what they did is in the way Lovett described unbelievably cagey that you would think you would go to literally russian soil their their diplomatic facility in the united states is russian soil use their what i assume they think is secret <laughs> encrypted communications gear to to communicate back. Ironically, in this case, it seems like we've penetrated those uh, systems since it's all in the newspaper now. I'm not saying this from any knowledge, but, you know, you kind of got screwed twice here, Jared. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, when what he's talking about is just it, it's unprecedented and it's so naive to think that that's what was needed in this instance. Yeah, I mean, like a bank channel by definition is, you know, we have interests as a country. You have interests as a country. There's a lot of complicated discussions that make it hard for us to get something done. Let's meet in a room. Let's have a conversation. Let's get rid of all the, the trapments and just see if we can hammer this out. That's not what this is. Yeah, There's right. nothing to do with that. Well, it was also interesting that, okay, if this was really about Flynn and it was about Syria and diplomacy, then why did Jared also meet with a Russian banker with ties to Putin and the I Russian mean, spy agency? Who's never done diplomacy who's before. Who's never done diplomacy. <laughs> and this is where like the conspiracy is just, it's all sitting out in front of us. Right. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing subtle, nothing secret here. Like real estate kid who needs a lot of money meets with a Putin-backed banker. You know, a lot of this seems like some blatant self-dealing, like some Putin crony who is plucked out of the spy services and established at a bank. I mean, it's all a little too convenient and weird. Well, apparently, and CNN reported this morning that during 2016, U.S. intel heard Russian officials discussing leverage of a financial nature over Trump. What a shock. <laughs> the thing we've all suspected all along. But it is, isn't it crazy that like all the stuff that we think is the sort of the ultimate conspiracy and like this, it couldn't be that. I know. That's like Luis Mensch territory, <laughs> right? But like it's seeming that like a lot of this stuff is coming. I don't you, know. Is you it have true? To, it's, you don't want to. It's so awful. You don't want to believe that you it's have true. to sort of like look at what's happened and you have to say, like, what is an explanation for this that doesn't right, involve right. leverage over Donald Trump? And I don't need it to be a dossier about peeing in a fucking bed. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that. Yeah. It could be something else. That, it could be something that would be we've not. That would be, honestly, that would be better. <laughs> it would honestly better for it to be a sexual picadillo <laughs> than for it to be financial leverage over many members of the administration. Because at this point, we're looking at, you know, Donald Trump has no scruples. He has no value. He's not approaching this from a sense of dignity or shame. He doesn't experience those emotions. And yet here he is refusing to this day to say a bad word about Russia, giving Russia an open door 
uh, to do all kinds of things in Europe. And and again, like this is what Putin wants, right? Putin wants this outsized influence on the world stage. The Russian economy is smaller than Italy's. It's smaller than South Korea's. It's smaller than India's. It's smaller than Brazil's. It is an incredibly crucial and important country. It borders like <laughs> borders like every hotspot around zones. the world. Eight time zones. It, it, it does. It does deserve an outsized uh, bit of influence compared to its GDP. But Donald Trump talking about some crazy deal he's going to make in the future as a justification for his light hand with with Vladimir Putin doesn't make any sense. None of it makes sense without right. leverage. I mean, the, none of it. The, this is the, the the laziest sort of policy proposal in, in, in foreign policies is like, well, I'll, I'll create a better personal relationship with this ex-leader and then we can align on interests. And I think hmm. with respect to Russia, they are a petro state that's dealing with a, a cratering economy, declining oil prices, and what Putin does is uses fear of another uh, and views the world in zero-sum terms. So if he can cut down the United States or create chaos or make us look diminished in any way, that's that's a win for him. Can't build Russia up, got to tear the United States down. There you go. There you go. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop Should Jared have his security clearance revoked? Some Democrats are calling for this. Uh, Cory Booker on Sunday said, no, we should at least go through a process first. What do we think about this? I have no idea (laughs) what we should be doing because this is so unprecedented. A senior advisor to the president who has access to the most secure information that our country collects. Washington Post reported today that he gets his own intelligence briefing. Jared does before uh, Trump gets his. Yeah, he I mean, lied on his F. With what's what's certainly clear is he lied on his FS eighty six. Right, yeah. he yeah. lied. He did yeah. later amend the SF eighty six to yeah. report those meetings, but originally he did not include he, them. Yes, I, the that the piece in the Post about how Trump gets his PDB was interesting. The the chilling part to me was imagining Jared sitting on that couch as like because that's you know it's one thing to get an intelligence assessment. It's one thing to have top secret clearance. Or, or access to, you know, code word level compartments or special access programs. Like, to sit in on that PDB every day and get the most up-to-date intelligence picture constantly, um, you need someone that you trust completely. 
And I don't think he's given us any reason to trust him completely in the same way General Flynn has not. And so should they strip his clearance? Like, yes, of course. <laughs> of course. He Absolutely. He's a little dilettante. He shouldn't be in the goddamn PDD in the first place. He's and a honestly, 36-year-old real estate punk. Suspend it and then take a fucking look at it. I'm not saying he can't get it back yeah. if, if all this turns out to have been innocent, which is hilarious. Well, but what, what are we doing here? Let's also remember that... Right, it's a risk question. Over, yes. the, over the weekend, since the story broke on Friday, the White House has not refuted the story, right? Like, no comment from the White House or from Jared's lawyers are saying that it's false. Did you which see is that? a first for them, actually. Yeah. yeah. Did you see that Fox News uh, ran a story without yes. a name? Yeah. One, <laughs> one source, no name. Catherine Harris just to embarrass to slap her name on it because she's like, been their stenographer for a long time. It was written by the website itself. It's the emergent consciousness of Fox News Nation. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, too? Like, all the stuff with Hannity last week, a bunch of people are you're tweeting, like, you know, Fox News has some great journalists who work there, but Hannity, blah, blah, blah. You know what? At this point, we can count the real journalists who work at Fox News on one hand. And, yeah. and people like name them. Uh, Shep Smith, I guess Chris Wallace, maybe a few others, uh, you guys are the cover for an evil organization, and if you don't leave, you're fucking part of it. It's, you know, just, it's just so clear that you're part of something evil. Yeah. But back, back on the security clearance question, like, it's not something I thought a lot about until I saw that Booker thing. Same. Saw that, but... It's just a question of risk. Like, if there's any chance that he could have been misleading, there's any chance he could be blackmailed, if there's any chance that we suspect he could be coughing up secrets, I don't think he's a spy. I don't think he's a double agent. I think he's a in over his head. But, like, I don't get why. The, the, the goalposts have moved so far in terms of allowing these things to just continue that we, we're not doing the basic things to protect our country. And it's not as if we haven't been through this before. Every <laughs> Russia has spent decades trying to develop people to help influence and gather information on the United States of America. And even if Jared Kushner doesn't realize it, he could have been completely compromised. Yeah. He doesn't have to know that he's doing it. That was the John Brennan line. It was like the, a lot of most people who are on the path towards treasonous behavior don't know until it's too late. That was, was quite like, a line. Shit, John. Also, let's remember that Paul Ryan called for Hillary Clinton not to have a security clearance yeah. after uh, James Comey said he would not be prosecuting her for any kind of crimes. I mean, the, the boundless hypocrisy. I can't. <laughs> it just, it's I a, thought I would just, just dangle Paul Ryan over the conversation <laughs> just to I mean, again, see like, if Lovett can jump over the desk. You know, it's become, such, it's become so routine to see these people fail to do their jobs. Like, this is not, there's, it, was, it was not inevitable that Paul Ryan would capitulate his role this much. It just, it was not automatic that we'd be in this situation where these endless stories about the compromised White House and these, these idiots and these nefarious doings that would have absolutely no consequences on, on the Hill. There's just no rule that said they had to do it this way. And look, we pick on Paul Ryan all the time, as we should, but um, Bob Corker, right, that head of the me. Foreign Intelligence Committee in the Senate... Um, one of the supposedly, I'm not going to call him moderate, but let's call him a mainstream, adult, a mainstream conservative Republican, hopefully an adult. Yeah. First of all, he puts out this statement after the foreign trip saying, smashing success. I called President Trump and told him what a great, wonderful job he did putting this whole thing together. Bob Corker, Bob Corker went to the Capitol steps and released doves. <laughs> he was so happy. <laughs> and then on the Jared thing, he said, look, he's, he seems like a great guy. Very, let's, let's just hear him out. I'm sure there's a great explanation for this. But, and Lindsey Graham's first thing, I don't know if I buy this, right? John McCain said he was troubled by it. Oh, yes. John, John McCain's McCain endlessly troubled. troubled. Right. And of course, usually what 
happens with Lindsey Graham is he says the wrong thing, then McCain says the right thing, even though McCain doesn't do anything, and then Lindsey Graham sort of catches up with John McCain's position a week later. So I guess we'll wait for Lindsey Graham on that. It's like a fucking mock trial team. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I read you guys a quote from Bob Corker? Sure. Those around the world who are looking to the United States for support oh against intimidation, oppression, or outright massacres have learned a tough lesson in the past few years. This U.S. president, despite his bold pronouncements and moral posturing, cannot be counted on. The president's empty promises and unreliability are at their most acute in Eastern Europe. That was an op-ed about Barack Obama. That was not about. Wow. That was not about Donald Trump. And like, he's a Republican, but he's also one of the people who is sort of seen by the elites in Washington as an adult, who's someone who's a he's a policy wonk who will do the right thing. He's been bipartisan in a number of ways. And when these people start putting out fawning statements about a foreign trip, there was obviously not positive. It was obviously a failure, I think, to anyone who actually looked closely or listened to what Angela Merkel said. For him to do this fawning bullshit like he's Hope Hicks releasing their North Korea propaganda statements is really troubling. And it's like an institution falling down on its face. And I just, you know, you see you see various versions of the capitulation. You see, obviously, there's the Marco Rubios, I think, who have convinced themselves that they don't say anything publicly, but they're working on the intelligence committee by the by, behind the scenes. Or you have Bob Corker, who I, I, I do believe is a smart and sophisticated foreign policy person who has sort of a sense of the world and what he hopes to achieve. And, and, and yet he, too, now believes that somehow it's in the interest of either himself or his policy goals to kind of do this kind of fawning around Donald Trump, maybe to garner influence. I, I don't know, but... We should also Man. we should also mention that Bob Corker is up for re-election in 2018, and I, uh, and if you and if you took if you listed the Senate Republicans who are vulnerable, it would of course be Dean Heller, then Jeff Flake, and then Corker and Cruz would be the next two. But, which but, they're not vulnerable, but those are the next two but, on the list. But so. these are people taking different. Uh, the different tax to what it means to be up for re-election. Right. I don't understand why being up for re-election, even in Tennessee, would lend to this kind of fawning praise. It doesn't well, actually flow from where his popularity is at. I'm sure Trump's popularity in Tennessee is like through the roof. You know, I mean, some of them are going to make calculations that the best way to win re-election is to make sure you do not lose one fucking base voter. You know, and that that might be Corker's calculation there, or maybe he's just lost it. I don't know. Um, speaking of elections, uh, let's talk about Montana really quickly. Um, so, uh, the, uh, guy who body slammed the reporter won, won the election, Gianforte. Mm -hmm. He's going to the, uh, he's going to the house. Wonderful addition. Um, Rob Quist lost. Um, Matt Taibbi wrote a piece in Rolling Stone that I thought was interesting called the Democrats need a new message. And basically the conceit of the piece is why do Democrats keep losing to spectacularly awful candidates like Gianforte and Trump? Now, Look, I, I sort of thought that that Matt's diagnosis of the problem was a little off just because I don't think Montana necessarily fits with this thesis. I think one of the reasons we lost in Montana is candidates have Republican candidates have won in Montana that Senate that uh, congressional seat by like 20 points just in 2016. It was a 20 point victory. Trump had a 20 point victory. Trump has a super high approval rating in Montana. So it's very hard. And, you know, Quist cut it down to like a six, seven point race. Great. But he does say some things that I think are interesting to think about. He talks about the deplorables comment from Hillary Clinton back in 2016. And he said, the deplorables comment is an example of how the Democratic Party has, quote, surrendered to a negativistic vision of a hopefully divided, hopelessly divided country. And uh, he said, Republicans are worse, but just because, quote, Republicans win using deeply cynical and divisive strategies doesn't mean it's the right or smart thing to do. And basically says that Democrats can't just go into elections 
trying to attack, 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 and tear down a Republican opponent and tell everyone how fucking awful that Republican is, that we need to start pushing through a positive, you know, message. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I, mean, I think. Sorry, no. I mean, I was I was talking to um to Matt McKenna, who was a Bill Clinton staffer for a long time, friend oh, of the yeah. pod. He's also from Montana. He's worked for Montana politicians. He did some work on this race. You know, he, he would argue that their message was healthcare and public lands, and that that would have been the message for any candidate. Yep. He would also point out that they had a a budget, and then they raised like six million dollars in the last month when voting started. So I do think there's there's it's the Drawing a broad brush from this race to any number of others is probably dangerous. There is appropriate caution here. Like, you know, the, you also mentioned the Nina Turner comment about yeah. no one in Ohio cares about Russia. We we, you know, we we don't want to go down the rabbit hole too far. Like, politics is about helping people. It's about health care. It's about economics. But I also don't want to overcorrect the wrong way. Like, we're not TV executives trying to water down our message and talk about the thing that will appeal to the most people. Like, some stuff just matters. And like, I, I think whether it matters to people right now or not, it matters. Figuring yeah. out if the president of the United States lied to the country matters. Figuring out if there's collusion between his team and a foreign country matters. And the fact that they're blocking that effort to, to figure it out matters. And guess what else didn't matter to the American people until it was repeated to them a million times? The Benghazi attacks, right? That, yeah. that is an issue. Obama bowing like th there's right wing apparatuses that create issues out of nothing. I don't think we should do that. I do think we need to have a positive message. We have to talk about the things that really matter. But like, I don't want to take our eye off the ball of some of the things we talked about earlier in the show, because those matter to me. And I think they should matter to everybody. Yeah, it's 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 really tough because like on one hand, I see the post story Friday night about Jared and I'm like, Oh fuck! These people are going down. Like this is this is a whole this is a big deal. We got to talk about this. But there's a part of me that's like, damn it, you know. On Monday, I'd rather be talking about what's happening with the health care bill in the Senate and how we can stop it from becoming law and talk about some other economic issue that actually matters to people. I would love to be talking about all these issues, and I don't want to just get people caught up in hoping that um, that Russia is an easy way out for us, right? That like we can just wait and hope, and then suddenly this whole administration will go down. On its own malfeasance, you know. Yeah. But yet, like you said, Tommy, like some things that might not matter to the public s still might matter right now for us to for us to focus on. I don't know. It's a, it's a very tough. Yeah. So I think that there's there's two things here. There's uh, larger questions about democratic vision, and then there's smaller questions about tactics in any individual election. Like, so the point he makes about we shouldn't be as cynical. As Republicans, I actually don't think that's been our problem. I think our problem is that we've been pretty naive in that we thought. We thought, you know, we could appeal to people's better instincts. We could talk about love Trump's hate. We could talk about how vulgar and crass and racist Donald Trump is. And it turns out that that wasn't enough. It's not enough in any election. It wasn't enough for Hillary Clinton to become president. That doesn't mean that those issues aren't really, really important. But I feel like part of what we're, we're missing, and I think the thing that, that Taibbi's getting at here, is we need a larger vision that we can come back to over and over again. There may be weeks we spend talking about Russia, and that's important, and maybe weeks we talk about whether or not the president uh, is uh, corrupted and, and, and from uh, is under the thumb of a foreign government. I think that matters. I think we need to talk about that. But when, when we're finished saying that, that what are we going to do? And right. I think I think yeah. the bottom line, we just do not have a coherent, compelling story. 
about what we're going to do that's more than just stopping them. Well, I think the, the, the smartest thing he says in the piece is the largest group of potential swing voters out there doesn't need to be talked out of voting Republican. It needs to be talked out of not voting at all. Right. Right. And that's the sort of the people that we're after here. Right. Is people who not not Republicans who are not going to get anyway. I mean, like if 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 you saw Gianforte, fucking body slammer reporter and all the other horrible things that he did in that race endorse uh, Trump care and all this. And you say, like, no, 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 I still want that guy. I don't know that we're going to reach you, but we at least have to try to reach some of the people who decided, like, eh, they both seem like awful candidates. I don't like the Democratic Party. I don't like the Republican Party. I think politics isn't for me. I'm staying home. Yeah, I mean, I and that's at, a big group of people. You know, know? We had this giant primary, right, between Bernie and between Hillary, and it was a debate over fundamental questions about what the Democratic Party stands for. But even in that debate... A lot of it wasn't around a positive vision for what the country should look like. You know, Bernie has a, a, a critique around Wall Street and power and influence about getting money out of politics, about raising the minimum wage. Hillary Clinton had a kind of kind of adopted a lot of that tone, but kind of a more practical version. But even that is about stopping bad things. It's not it, it, it's as if we're still we're sort of trapped in a kind of language that never says, here's what the future looks like if we got everything we wanted. Yeah, that 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 is my great concerns. I, I think. Democrats um, betting on a strategy where we're simply rooting for Donald Trump to fail is, I don't think, going to be successful for us. Because if you're an individual that spent 10, 20, 30 years feeling like politics has always let you down, Trump catastrophically letting you down leads you to completely check out, to walk away from the whole thing, to not necessarily be susceptible to believing our message the next time around, that we're actually going to put forward policies that really help you. Because Trump, Warren talks about this in her book, and I'm excited to ask her about it, like Trump's populism is fake populism. It's anger and grievance in the guise of populism and the guise of helping people. And like the bullshit is getting stripped away and, you know, the coal jobs are not coming back. They're finally admitting all these things. Sorry. One, go ahead. Yeah. No, the, the one thing I'll say is that we have even in our big policy debates that Democrats are currently having, I think that the big next step for us to take is we need to stop debating whose critique is right. And we need to start talking purely about what we're going to do. Yeah. One thing I I remember that Obama always used to say in the campaign, and this was after eight years of George Bush, is he would sort of start his speech by saying, okay, the one thing we know is that George W. Bush is never going to be president again. And the question we have to ask ourselves is what's next? And then you just go. Right. And like we are going to have to get to a point where in 2020 or even in 2018, a lot of these candidates say, we all know that we hate Donald Trump and right. that he's an awful president and then right. he's done some horrible things. The question is, what are we going to do next? Right. It's almost like at some point Donald Trump stops being the enemy and starts being the weapon we use to defeat bad ideas. Yeah. OK, we will talk more about this and a whole bunch of other issues when we come back with Senator Elizabeth Warren. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's this great stuff coming. Lots of great stuff. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
On the pod today, in studio, we are very lucky to have the senior senator from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, I'm tickled to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Oh, um, are you kidding? You offer donuts? I'm here. That's we, Yeah, we got some Dunkin' just for the occasion. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to, like, you guys we, are putting me in the zone here, right? We're not even supposed things. to have food yeah. and coffee in here, but so <laughs> the radius. You probably don't need them in front of you for the length of the interview. <laughs> I can sniff them the whole time. Do you feel like I need to take I can one. have like a sugar high. If you don't like a question and you want to avoid answering it, you can just take a bite of the donut. This is a good... Uh-huh. You are posing with my donuts here? <laughs> They're not even a sponsor. Uh-huh. We're, uh-huh. we're hoping yeah. that they'll be a sponsor. That's yeah, the boy. idea. Wouldn't we can great? talk them into doing we're this. We're just that. Right? I just want England. them to open some more franchises out in LA. Okay. That's all Make I that want. Clear. Yeah. You know? Make that clear. <laughs> Every summer uh-huh. of my life, huge iced painting houses mm-hmm. yelling about the Red Sox. Yeah. That's what we did. Exactly. What, an all-amer- what an all-American story, Tommy. I know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, stick into it. Um, so you recently said in an interview that... Hillary Clinton in 2016 didn't win a lot of working and middle class voters because Democrats didn't make the case. Yeah. And you said that it wasn't just her. It was all of us. We mm-hmm. all we all failed in a way. So if you were campaigning with a candidate today or in 2018, what would you say differently? What case would you make that was a better case than what we did in 2016? You know, it's like it's a good way to put it. I think. I think the thing I do now, like, can we do this just as go forward? Yeah. It doesn't have to be. Let, forget what we about looking have done back. Then. Yeah, I'm, How I'm do not we do into looking back. Yeah, because I think that's the real question. And for me, it's like, what are the biggest differences between us and them? Not what are the things we all agree on? It really is. So, what are the big differences? And man, the Republicans have made that so clear with health care. Yeah. Holy guacamole! Are you kidding me? Not a great bill. Yeah. <laughs> well, not only not a great bill. I mean, it's like, it's it's like Republicans distilled in this. It's like the the central essence. So they say, hey, here's what we're going to do. Here, here's how we're going to fix health care. Knock twenty four million people off their health care coverage in order to create tax breaks for a handful of millionaires and billionaires. Drive up costs for middle-class families, for working families, for people over 50, so that we can gift tax breaks to a handful of millionaires and billionaires. Oh, and just in case, because that wasn't enough to make it through the House the first time, I know, let's make it so that you can charge people who have pre-existing conditions a lot more, knock them off insurance, uh, people with mental health issues, people with substance abuse, uh, so that we can give tax breaks to a handful of millionaires and billionaires. Well, to me now, man, that's there it is. Let's run on that one. Let's run on that one, because that one tells you what Republicans care about, and that is it's the second half of every one of those sentences, so that we can give tax breaks to a handful of millionaires and billionaires, and let's talk about what Democrats stand for, and that is how we get health care coverage for all of America, how we get better outcomes at lower costs. That's our job, and that's the difference between the two parties right now. Well, and what do we say about that? Because, you know, there's going to be some people out there who say, yes, I hate that bill, I don't like Trump care. I think it's garbage. But under Obamacare, my premiums were still rising too fast. I still couldn't afford it. My deductibles were too high. What are Democrats going to do to fix the health care system? So, look, there are two ways you can do it. One is you can say, I'm going to be the technocrat here for a second, say, yeah, no kidding, your health care bills are going up. Because right now, I mean, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, right, just announced they got to charge the maximum amount because they think that that Trump and the Republicans are going to cut the legs out from underneath them and change parts of Obamacare that won't let them cover their costs. 
But I don't think we want to go weeds. I think you just go high and say, you're right. We want to do more. But here are our values. Here are our goals. We want 100% coverage for everyone. And we want it at the lowest possible cost. There's a lot of ways to wring cost out of this system, and we are on board to do that. In fact, we got a bill right now, just one piece of it that we want to do as Democrats. I want to be able to import drugs from Canada. You know, there are places in Canada where, and in the United States on certain drugs, where we're paying 10 times as much for the same drug. If we could import drugs from Canada, same kind of safe drugs from Canada, man, you bring down costs for families, you bring down costs for insurance companies. That's a way that we continue to get better outcomes at lower cost. Bernie Sanders has put this bill together. We've got a whole group of Senate Dems on it. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things we can do to make it better, but you've got to have that that's your value. When you start with, how am I going to create tax cuts? How am I going to knock people off health insurance? You don't end up in a good place. You end up a place that is truly a punch in the gut to working families. So one of the problems with us getting that message out is, is money in politics. And you talk oh, a lot yeah. in your book and throughout your career about you know the, the danger of money in politics. And I think you essentially make a case that it's worse than we even know. Mm-hmm. And, and Jane Mayer wrote a great book called Dark Money that's this look at how corporate money funds not just candidates, but these think tanks and, and, and rent-a-quote academic institutions. Um, how do we start to solve that problem in the wake of Citizens United? Well, the first way you start is you flip on the flashlight. Right. This stuff happens behind closed doors. This stuff happens and everyone's polite about it. Right now, somebody shows up to testify in front of Congress and everybody says, blah, 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 blah. Right. You like them. You don't like them. You know, and you may engage on substance and nobody asks the fundamental question like who paid for you to be here? Who Mm -hmm. paid for your research? So-called research. Uh, Has any of your research actually been? Do academics believe your research, or is this just stuff you're churning out now? Right. You know, I, I tell the story in the book. Um, uh, I talk about uh, asking a question about one of the experts who came in front of us who was talking about a, a whole thing about whether or not <laughs> – whether or not your investment advisor ought to be able to recommend products. <laughs> Are you ready for this? That that improve the economic well-being of the investment advisor or whether or not they ought to have to put the customer's right. interests first. And this guy purports, this expert, and he has these fabulous credentials from a fabulous think tank. And he purports to say that, oh, his research shows that if they're not allowed to take kickbacks, that this could cost the American people a bazillion dollars. <laughs> and there was just this funny little bottom, you know, little half a footnote kind of thing on the where that work had been done. And I start pulling this thread. And it turns out that... <laughs> One of the actors in the industry that stood to lose a lot of money had paid for this study and had had pre-reviewed the study and had some kind of input into it. And then they had used the name of the think tank to just, you know, he mm-hmm. had attached himself to that and it all looked like it was straight up research. And I use that just as an example in the book of the insidious ways that, that money floods through. But here's one of the points I actually make in the book. Is it when I called him out on it, 
there were a lot of folks in Washington who thought I somehow was the one who was out of line. You know, that it was the, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's like, you're not supposed to talk about that. You know, in right. polite company, you're not supposed to talk about that sort of thing. And so that's why I say the place you start is, man, you got to call it out. That's the first place. Not the last place, but it's the starting point. So I read your book over, oh, over the over the holiday. Actually, listen to it. The book mo- is This Fight is Our Fight. Uh, I listened to it at 1.5 speed. Oh, um, uh-huh. How did I sound at 1.5? Uh, great. great. I, I think I talk at 1.5 anyway. So. Uh, well, when, now, now you seem like you're talking quite slow, but I think that's on <laughs> me. Because <laughs> I got used to it. Okay. Uh, so I think that you, know, you tell this pretty... Uh, conclusive story right about 30 years of deregulation of tax you know tax policy being tilted towards the rich and to corporations about influence of money in politics of influence of lobbying and paid experts etc on the on the process by which we make laws and and that seems to be the center of your diagnosis of the problem and and one thing I, that I was I was actually surprised about is uh, it, it seems like a, a, a lot of the diagnosis is if we fix these things, right, if we can get the money out of politics and then we can put some more money into things like research and infrastructure, we can raise the minimum wage, we can uh, tilt the regulations against the banks more as opposed to what they've been lately, and, and, and then we can have a, a strong middle class again. And what I, what I found uh, interesting about that is that you kind of hear there's a second debate and one that's about automation, globalization, the consolidation of big companies. And... My question for you is, if we solve all your problems, we let's say we get the kind of Congress we want and we, we push back against the banks and we raise the minimum wage and we, we, we put stronger regulations and cops on the beat, uh, don't, don't we then have to turn to these larger structural forces? Totally we have to turn to them, but here's the point I'm trying to make. If you don't have a government on your side, those problems, those problems will, will kill us. I mean, they really will, both literally and figuratively. It's... Only if we have a government that works for us that you can make these other you can harness these other forces and make them work in ways that work for working families. Look, we've had innovation and change in this country for a long, long time. What shifted and here's the long arc of the story I tell is that America was this boom-bust economy from the 1700s, right, forward, about every 20 years. The economy would would be okay, and then it would get stronger, and then it would get more strong, and then it would get bigger, and then it would all... Bl- that's my radio sound <laughs> yeah, stuff, right? Yeah, like that. Can we no, hit it? Then I go, ding, ding. People right. are worried that there was an explosion. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was just me. Okay. And, and then the economy would blow up, and, and the problem was... When the economy blew up, it took down not just the speculators, it took down the farmers and it took down the shopkeepers and it took down employees. It took down a lot of people who never had a chance to build much of anything up. So a lot of the world believed that's just the natural order of things. It's like tide, you know, tides, not the detergent, the stuff, you know, (laughs) the waves that come in. Right, tide pods. There we go. It's that they thought that was how the world had to be. And in 1930, or 33, when Franklin Roosevelt comes in, he has this incredibly, uh, this this bold vision, and that is, we can do better. And he harnesses government 
to work for the people. And the first thing he does, the first tool is the tool of regulation. And he says, no more boom and bust with these dang banks. And they break up some of the the biggest. They start enforcing antitrust laws, uh, put Glass-Steagall in place to separate investment banking from, you know, your checking account, savings account banking, put a cop on the beat on Wall Street. That's the SEC. And it levels the playing field. And we don't have booms and busts. And the second thing he does is he says, and we can build opportunity for our people. So they do progressive taxation and they bring it back. And 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 we invest in education and infrastructure and basic research. And 1935 to about 1980, that's our basic vision. And we built something amazing in this country. We built opportunity. It's It's the strongest middle class on earth. But the point is, it was opportunity. It was opportunity for a kid like me. My my dad ended up as a janitor. My mom worked a minimum wage job, but I got a chance, a college that cost $50 a semester. It was an America of expanding opportunity. And let me just add on that, because it was not a perfect America. Um, Black-white wealth gap has been there since we first started measuring. But even there, 1965 to 1980, the black-white wealth gap shrinks by 30%. We are expanding opportunity for all of us. And then you hit 1980. Ronald Reagan, deregulation, right? Mm -hmm. Eventually get rid of uh, Glass-Steagall. You tell the big banks they can do pretty much whatever they want to do. And we get rid of Progressive taxation is tax cuts. I mean, we have it's somewhat progressive, but you do tax cuts for those at the top, reduce the investments in education, in infrastructure, in basic research. So, and what happens? It works. It works. That is, the 90% of America ends up left behind without opportunity, without growth. And so, 1980 to 2017, GDP keeps going up, but the 90% of America gets none of the new income growth. So now I'll answer your question. I know that was a long runway, <laughs> but I'm think of me as, you know, a Boeing 707. It's going to take a long time. So We do we do details, we do depth here. Good. That's okay. why we're better than the news. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So so back to your question. For me, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's hard, right? Uh, how do we compete internationally? Uh, What happens in a tech world where you need fewer and fewer of certain kinds of workers? And the answer for me for all of that is this is the importance of having a government on your side. It's I talk about this a little bit in the book about trade, for example. I don't believe that we shouldn't trade. You know, I don't believe that we all should, you know, eat squirrels and, and, you know, (laughs) craft our own doorknobs. Uh, (laughs) What I believe... The well-known protectionist position. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, the Oregon Trail policy. These people are ripping us off with these doorknobs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's that you've got to build right from the beginning. You've got to build in that we're going to do it in a way that doesn't work for the thinnest slice at the top, but that works for all of us. And sometimes that's going to be about progressive taxation. Sometimes, you know what I mean? It's There are different tools you can use. Same thing is true on tech. I, I did a whole long piece. It's In the book, I only do a very short version of it, but I did a whole long speech, uh, I don't know, maybe six months ago, about about the changing workforce and how we got to change the rules. Like, did you know that Uber drivers under current federal law 
can't get together and negotiate collectively with Uber because technically each one of them, or allegedly, is a 1099 separate yeah, contractor. independent yeah. contractor, and that would be collusion. Well, duh, that's a government that's not working for us, right? So, so I say that is, yeah, there's innovation. Of course, there's innovation. We're gonna, I, great. You know, someday someone's gonna make a bigger version of a Dunkin' Donut, right? And we're all gonna love it, and we're gonna eat it communally, and all kinds of things that are gonna be innovative here. But the rules are set by our government. The basic regulatory structure and the basic tax structure and where you pull it away and you you make the investments in opportunity. And if that's what we're working on, we'll we'll figure out how to solve these problems. We will. One thing uh, you mentioned, you touch on it briefly in the book about, you know, United Airlines and, mm-hmm. and American Airlines, that there's been this move towards consolidation, how 70% of our soybeans are grown by several small, several giant conglomerates. There's been an argument of late Not that... several. By, by one, by, by one, one, by, by one, one, by months. Yeah, one yeah. of them. Uh, there's been an argument I've seen late that, of late that Democrats are not making a big enough deal around trust busting, around consolidation, that that, that that shouldn't be one piece of the puzzle that's actually central to the reason there's so much in, income inequality and a loss of middle-class security. What, what do you think about that argument, that that needs to be th- the thing we're talking about? Well, it certainly needs to be in the top things we are talking about. I am totally there on this one. Actually, and I write about it in the book and tell the stories in the book, that antitrust law is what gives small businesses a chance. It's what gives consumers a chance. And here's the amazing thing. The data now show it's what gives workers a chance that as we get more and more consolidation in industry after industry after industry, the power of workers, the power of consumers, the power of small businesses to innovate, to create, to do something new shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And the the humongous, right, just takes up all of the space and rolls over everybody else. It's why we we passed antitrust laws more than 100 years ago. But how much they're enforced, it, very much there's been ebb and flow to that. <laughs> and it's been a lot of ebbing over right. the last 30 or <laughs> well, so years. You've seen Democrats be willing to say, I'm against this merger. But I feel like there's a timidity. Like mm. I, I don't see a lot of Democrats out there saying, we need to break up the cable companies. We need yep. to break up the airlines. We need to break up the, the big agriculture businesses. Do you think that's the next step we need to start taking? Yeah. I do. I think we need to talk about that. And like, as you rightly say in the book, I I give a lot of examples of this. We've got to be more willing to say, wait a minute, what's happening in America? There are three drugstore chains now, three in in all of America, and they have 99% of all drugstores in America. Think about that. And here's the deal. Two of them are about to merge. So we're going to go from three down to two. And and our the people who are supposed to be acting on behalf of the rest of us, the regulators, the Department of Justice that's supposed to look at that, has just been incredibly soft on this. Has been their merger approval uh, policy. So we talk a lot on this podcast about the sort of lingering divide in the Democratic Party. 2016, you didn't endorse a candidate in the primary. You then endorsed and campaigned with Hillary Clinton. When you did that, you still got some flack on the left. Some supporters called you sellout, all that kind of stuff. I don't think there's any member of the Senate or the Democratic Party more aligned with Bernie's philosophy, views, style of politics. Are you worried at all about sort of purity tests and the party going forward or this divide? Or how do you see that? 
moving forward. So I see this as, as a moment of such energy. Mm-hmm. And let's face it. The energy is in progressive politics right Right. now, and it's in progressive issues and progressive ideas. And here actually is a is a great example of that. You know, uh, uh, back before the election, before we even got into the primaries, there were five of us in the Democratic caucus who signed on to a bill to raise the minimum wage to 15. Now, okay. We didn't get it passed, you know, but the point is five out of 100, or if you want to just do it on the Democratic side, right, five out of whatever we had at that point, mm-hmm. 50, 48. Yeah. It's, it shrinks all the time. It's hard to keep track. <laughs> yes, I, I know. Come on. That's not funny. <laughs> That's not funny. But now we're, we just reintroduced that bill and we're up in the 30s. Yeah. Think about that. Okay. 30s is not the majority. But man, that's 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 a pretty good climb in a period of time. And the way I see that is that's the energy we've we've put those ideas out there. I I all of America heard Hillary and Bernie debating minimum wage. That's that's what we talked about on our side. The clown car on the other side, they were doing their you know tiny hands and sweaty stuff and all that. <laughs> and we were debating things like minimum wage, right? And the best way to approach it. And then we've got 30 plus senators saying, hey, that is now enough that I'll go home in my home state and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm going to be for. That's what I stand for. And that's how, you, that's how you make change. That's where the energy of our party is. Can I ask, I'm sorry, I just want to ask one follow-up on the minimum wage question. Sure. Because one thing that goes separate from wages is reliable work hours. You talk oh, about it a little bit. Yes. Um, I, I've seen a lot of people starting to talk about this problem. Is there an answer for how you get the companies? It's, it seems like it's a more subtle issue, right? Predictable work hours for people that are on sort of wage jobs. Right. So I'm glad you raised this. You know, one of the things I talked about in the book, because I try to draw the contrast between these two time periods when Basically, government was about building opportunity and working for working families. And then when government, 1984, it became something that worked for those at the top. I mean, that those are the two two shifts uh, over time. But I talk about my mom, that my dad had had a heart attack, is out of work for a long period of time. We had been a paycheck-to-paycheck family, and boy, without the paycheck... Man, it got rugged out there, and we lose the family station wagon, and we are about to lose our home when my mom puts on her best dress and her high heels and her lipstick, and she walks to the Sears and gets a minimum wage job. And that minimum wage job saved our home and saved our family. And and it's a it's an opening scene for me in the book because it's it's, it's such a moment to realize that that story is about how hard my mom worked, but it was also about an America that it set the minimum wage at a place where a family of three could survive on a full-time minimum wage job. So I talk about the importance of the difference between a seven and a quarter, you know, and, and being up if we were at 15. But also, when my mom went to work, she got 40 hours if Sears was busy, and she got 40 hours if Sears was wasn't busy at all because that was the deal. It was a 40-hour-a-week job, week after week after week. And Sears took the risk of the right. ebb and flow of business. And I I also tell in the book, as you know, the story of Gina, 
who works at Walmart and in many ways much better equipped to deal with the world than my mother was. She has a college diploma. She had several years of experience. She manages a department at, or an, at, an area uh, at, uh, at Walmart and yet fights every day. Not just It's not just her paycheck, her hourly. It's getting the hours and how her manager, in her view, uses hours as a way to punish and reward and keep workers in line. And how this has become not just an economic issue in the sense of can you get enough hours to to be able to to make your house payment or your car payment or your apartment payment and put food on the table, but how, how do you go back to school and get – how do you go to community college and upgrade your skills? How do you – how do you take? How do you deal with childcare when you don't know one week to the next whether you're working on Tuesdays and Thursdays or right. Mondays and Wednesdays, and and this has been a real shift of risk from what used to be the company that was better able to absorb it and had more resources to absorb it off to the workers and just say, man, you're out at the end of the string, and and the manager will pull when the manager feels like pulling, and you have to be there. So I have a. A, 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 a bill that's pending, and I've got some co-sponsors on it, uh, about scheduling uh, that just, in a sense, it like just asks for some of the most basic things, that you can't fire somebody for asking for a different schedule. I mean, it just tells you where we are right now in America, that, that that's the kind of stuff you've got to look for. Or that you, you um, when someone asks for a schedule so that they can go back to school and it would have no impact on your business. You, you, you've got to make it a priority to give it to them. It tells you how little workers have to bargain with in America right now and how much government has zoomed in on the side the rich, on the side of the powerful, on the big tax breaks, on the big mergers. Let Walmart be gigantic and then again and then again and let it roll over all the local businesses. And that there's just been nobody to stand up for working people. And, and, and we got to fight that back. Uh, Senator, I think we I think we have to make this last question. Um, oh, fiddle! But, Come on. So we can keep going. We can keep going. And then it's donuts. Zap drags you out of here. <laughs> yeah, we'll go for yeah, yeah, the will. door. They'll, they'll um, <laughs> so we Trump just finished this big foreign trip where he uh, managed to piss off the entire world to the uh-huh. point where Angela Merkel, one of our most stalwart allies, says like we need to take fate into our own hands as a continent. We Europe. Um, I see stories like this. It makes me very nervous. But sometimes the repercussions of these actions get lost in the admittedly very significant concerns about Russia and investigations and like how dumb is Jared Kushner exactly story of the day. You're one of the best messengers the Democratic Party has on economic issues. So how do you I want to hear how you might prosecute a case against Trump on foreign policy or talk about what a Democratic foreign policy message is about how we can make people safer than they are today. Yeah. So I think we start with leadership. And that means leadership of our country, but it also means America's leadership role in the world. And why it is so important to have a president that values working with our allies, 
because we live in a very, very dangerous world. And we need to be able to trade intelligence. We need to be able to share uh, in the in the defense, we need to be able to act in concert. Look, how did we get the Iran nuclear deal through, for example? Mm-hmm. And the answer was because President Obama and his entire team worked hard to get a lot of nations together to say, we're going to put economic sanctions in place. We're really going to right. tighten down. That takes cooperation, and it takes treating other nations with respect mm-hmm. and and saying in a in a calm way not a big fancy headlines way but here's our goal we don't want iran to have nuclear weapons that is deeply dangerous to the region uh, dangerous to our ally israel but dangerous to the entire world and by saying that Quietly and calmly, over and over, nation by nation, we ultimately put in place tough economic sanctions and watch the Iranian economy down, down, down. And that's what brought Iran to the table to be able to sit down and negotiate. And now Iran has stepped off this path that it was on to develop a nuclear weapon. The the measurement was down to months that people were talking about how long it would be before Iran would have a nuclear weapon. And that is no longer the case. And we have inspections. Does it, you know, is Iran a a great ally? No. You know, there's still a lot that Iran does that's terrible. And frankly, there are other sanctions in place for that and, and need to be. And there needs to be real accountability. But I just want to look at that one thing. Every part of what Iran is doing right now would be a whole lot worse if they had nuclear weapons. And yet it was... The work together with allies and acquaintances, right? not even not even all the way to full allies, uh, with other nations that got us in a position that that moved us on that international stage one click safer. And that's important. It's it's work that takes patience and it takes real leadership. And the United States has shown we can play that role. We have played that role. But when Donald Trump seems to burn alliances for no gain other than something to do with his own ego, then he is destroying something of value to all of us. And it will be felt in, in our security and the security mm-hmm. of the entire world. Um, one more question. So a lot of us believe that the uh, the first version of Trump Care died in the House because of all this grassroots opposition at these yeah. town halls. And then a second version passed. And it passed because a lot of these so-called moderate Republicans, they caved, despite all of that grassroots pressure. So now as we're looking at the Senate version of this and Republicans trying to write this in the Senate – what can we do to stop it, right? Because I, we sort of worry here. We tell everyone, show up at these town halls, do whatever you can. It's all about activism and, and organizing. And then, you know, victory just sort of sneaks away at the end and it, and it, and it passes in the House. So what do we tell people to do or, or what are you guys doing in the Senate to try to stop them from okay. passing something? So this is the right question. And it, it actually is the last chapter of my book where I right, talk about this fight is our note. fight. Yeah. Because I truly do believe that. We have got to be in this fight. So let me... Let me do history slightly differently from the way you do, because I look at this a little differently. Yeah, 
we're in the same place. We beat them back on the first round, and we beat them back because we were everywhere. And we said, listen, we did that one at, <laughs> man, we were in Boston. We we did our march. We had our protest. Yeah. We nearly froze to death out there, but <laughs> but we were out there freezing for health care. Listen, it was right? 67 in L.A. Oh, there were hardships hoo. everywhere. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, you guys, that's, you know, we develop character <laughs> yes, in places like Massachusetts, right? So, yes, that's part one. But part two, when you, you point out there were, there were Republicans who caved, I actually think it was less about the moderates caving, and it was more about the right wing saying it's now brutal enough that we can sign off, right? right. It, was, it was not ugly enough in version one, so the 2.0 made it even worse. But here's the deal. You notice they passed that thing and then ran for the hills. Right. They didn't wait for a CBO score. They didn't want any public debate. They wanted no headlines. That There's a message in that. And the message in that is, wow, there are a <laughs> lot of people who don't like this. Now, yeah. granted, they still got their folks on the far right who are going to support them, and they were feeling pressure over there as well. But I don't read the way they handled this as saying they don't care about the pressure that we brought to bear. I think they care enormously. And they're just hoping to get under the radar screen and that something else will explode and no one will pay attention to them. And they've all got their eyeballs focused on what's going to happen to them in 2018. And I got to tell you, we got to have our eyeballs focused on what happens to them in 2018. But right now in the Senate, you better believe that it matters those phone calls, those emails, those tweets, um, those protests, that showing up at office hours, uh, taking pictures, where is my senator? I, just firsthand, I just want to say this. my Some of my colleagues in the Senate mm-hmm. have been completely freaked out by how much people in their home states have paid attention to this health care bill. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a big fight, but that's, that's our only chance. We, we got all the Democrats. We're sticking together. We got 48 of us on our side. We got to peel off some Republicans who get really nervous. And the only way they're going to be really, really nervous is if there are people who are engaged all the way. You think we have a chance of getting like Heller and Flake and some of these guys that are up in 18? I, I think we got a chance. Absolutely, we got a chance. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. I'm not giving up on anybody on this one. I mean, in terms of bringing pressure to bear, um, among those who would be hurt, keep in mind, it's rural hospitals that would just get smacked. And these senators, they're senator for the whole state and supposed to be there for their whole state. So I think there's a there's a lot of pressure to bear. You know, cancer... Doesn't ask if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Um, uh, Strokes and heart attacks and babies born with holes in their hearts. Um, Having a parent in a nursing home and not being able to pay for it. They just, it's not a party affiliation. This is about what it means to be a human being. And this is where I think America has changed, even over the last eight or nine years. Yeah, there's been a lot of fighting about the Affordable Care Act, and yeah, there are things we need to do better in it, and I'm all for that. But the bottom line is health care is a basic human right. 
And I think here in America, we've come to see that. And I think this is a big part of what Democrats stand for today, is health care is a basic human right. We're all working for what are the best ways to get everybody covered and to do it at the lowest possible cost. And there's there's a lot we can do. There's a lot we should do. But the bottom line is that's where we're aiming. The Republicans, they think it's all still about tax breaks. Yeah. Yep. For the rich and the powerful. Well, we'll keep fighting. Um, you bet we will. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Oh. Your book is This Fight is Our Fight. Everyone go grab it. It's a great book. And uh, we appreciate you coming by. Oh, thank you. And eat a donut while you read it. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. All right. All right. Thanks.